You are listening to Comfortably Uncomfortable Conversations. I am your host, Evan J. Hall. I respectfully acknowledge that we are blessed by the land on which we gather, live, and connect. It is the traditional and unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, specifically the Kwatlin, the Katsi, the Semiamu, and the Tawasan First Nations. Um, I'm super excited about my guest today, and I'm going to tell you why. And I want to say that every single episode, but that's because my guests are extraordinarily awesome. But this guest in particular, um, when I started Loudmouth Brown Girl, at the beginning of last year, I was like, I'm just going to keep writing and see what happens. I didn't have any expectations. I didn't have any plans. And then towards the middle of the year, I was like, well, I want to take this to the next level. I should probably start thinking about saving some money to put it aside for a publicist. And with like no plans to hire a publicist last year or even this year, I just thought that's something that I should keep in the future if I'm going to keep promoting this brand. And then I joined Afro Canada Bud Sisters. And by some fluke, this redheaded, fiery, passionate, slightly chaotically crazy, beautiful woman sends me a Facebook message and says, I'd like to be your friend. And I was like, okay, random stranger, editor. And it turns out that she is the world-renowned Tracy Lamori from Lamori Media. And she also happens to be the publicist for Afro-Canada Bud Sisters. Welcome, Tracy. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I'm very honored to be, to, you know, do some work in helping to build their brand get their important voices out there. Hello. Thank you so, so much. I'm hugely honored to be on the show. I'm, are you kidding me? I am like, I, okay. So as a woman of color, when random white women or people for that matter, um, try to add me on Facebook specifically, not so much Twitter, but on Facebook, that's kind of like where my friends and family are. And so the people on my Facebook are a little bit more clued into what's going on in my life than say people on Twitter or Instagram. So when random white people are like, I want to be friends, I'm like, nope, delete. And I thought about it for like three days. I was like, should I add this random stranger? Well, she's <laughs> friends with Natalie. She's friends with Kadisha. She's got to be safe. Um, I'm so glad that you're here because through being friends with you, I've learned a little bit about your business and I want to read something to you that you've already read because it's on your website. Uh, it says, I'm beginning to wonder whether Tracy Lamori ever sleeps. I've emailed her at 1.30 in the morning and she immediately responded. Tracy brings her passion and knowledge of the cannabis industry and combines it with professional know-how and tireless tenacity. I'm very happy we chose Tracy, Tracy and Lamori PR to amplify our message, she just gets us. Natalie Cox, Afro-Canada Bud Sisters. That is not something that the phrase she just gets us is not something that Black women often say about white women. So what do you feel when you hear those words? Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly you don't hear me speechless often and literally when I hear stuff like that when I think about the people like it brings literally bringing tears to my eyes when I think about people like Afro-Canada Bud Sisters or you know Bolo the 13 year old with the song Make It Right or Angela Sadler Williamson Rosa Parks's cousin who I've been working with for six years but people like that and and, and strangers that you know 
I meet every day that choose me stateside to amplify their voices. I'm continually, literally, look at me like a ball, like a baby, but I'm continually actually amazed. And I'm always, you know, and, and honored that, you know, they actually even consider me to amplify their messages and trust me to do that. Just, you know, I've never heard a phrase exactly the blunt way you just said it, but I feel that too. So they're like, you know, why am I so honored that people trust me to, you know, do that, to be there, to help, you know, amplify their voices. It's a huge honor. I have nothing to say. <laughs> so, and I think that it is super important to like when we think about celebrities like Chris Evans or Robert Downey Jr. or Scarlett Johansson or Michelle Obama or Barack Obama, they all have publicists. Mm-hmm. And those publicists' job is to make sure that their names and their stories get out there. And I don't think that we in the regular everyday society think about what an important job that is. Um, because essentially it is your job to fight, to make sure that those voices are heard. Yeah, exactly. So when you say people trust you to amplify their voices, that's huge to me. Like that's a huge, it's an opportunity to schmooze with famous people and to go to special events that other people don't get to go to, but it's so much more than that. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? What you just said, 100%. Like, VIP parties, you know, I laugh all the time. Like, somehow, what I really cared about got me to this elevated position that now everyone's like, oh, my God, that's so, you know, and I'm on this, you know, stages and being applauded and award-winning this and that and all that stuff that comes with being a publicist, you know, that it is really part of it. But what got me here was working, you know, learning to write a press release to, to, to help write, uh, free an innocent man from death row, Jimmy Dennis, who is free now, thank God, and not just from my work, but from the legal team and the group from 20 years. But, um, you know, the, the fact that, um, so people, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it, you know, it, it's weird to be in a position where it's like a lauded, a plotted position. And I came to this from activism and advocacy. And I say, and make sure that people know that because especially when I meet people and I do these, I've been doing 160 business podcasts, talking to executives and entrepreneurs literally around the world. And half of the podcasters are hiring me and they're all, you know, all eating out of my hand because I have this good information and I know what I'm doing and all that. And I always bring it back to somewhere, you know, yeah, you build up yourself that I'm talking about, you build up your brand, sure, make your million dollars, whatever you got to do. And I say it like that, whatever, you know, whatever you got to do. But then what do you do with it? What do you do? If you're not doing work with your platforms and your money to make sure, you know, things are more equitable, things are more fair. And I don't, you know, any platform I get, I talk about stuff like that. And I make sure they agree. And I say it in ways. And if I've got a, you know, white podcaster in America, I, I don't know who he is. I don't always know him. In the current environment, I'm a little is this one of the 30% or is this person cool until I really know, right? So I, if, until I really, I make sure I'm throwing in things that you cannot disagree with, you know, and yeah. you go back and listen to it and then you learn from that. Like talk about, you know, until we have this fairness and equity blah, 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 without using the flag things that I know they're going to, you know, make them go off. I make sure they end up having to agree with me on everything. You know, if I'm even thinking someone is not already thousand percent understanding what we know. You know, because I don't talk to anybody that's negative on the other side. Like, it's not. But I mean, if there's anybody who just, I don't, if I don't know for sure that they're not like, if I don't say something about equity and they're not like, yeah, no, exactly. You know, you know what I mean? Then I make sure I go more into all in that kind of stuff, in the business message, in the whatever. So in whatever I do, you know, that's, it's never going to not be important. That's always going to be important. And again, so- I mean, I'm always... I'm made not just to honor, but actually amazing. People continue to like say, yeah, I'm going to trust the girl, especially the more I learned. I thought I knew, 
you know, about racism in America and all that, but the more, and even here, but the more I learn as these difficult, difficult conversations are happening in the last year, and people are sharing their specific experiences, and it's just like, oh my God, like, still I didn't know after 20, 30 years of anti-racist work, still I didn't know, still I didn't know, still I didn't know, and we don't know, and we can't know, you know, we can't, but I, I, so like, it continually amazes me that people who have those lived experiences every single day of being disrespected and seconded and all that stuff would trust me and I realize my heart is not there, my heart is in elevation, and like, it's, you know, I'm just always amazed, I'm grateful, I'm grateful that they see that. Um, when it comes to celebrity in terms of i say that because those are the people that need publicists um are the famous ones who who need somebody to make sure that their name is continuously being mentioned we have seen in the last 15 to 20 years a shift in what makes people a celebrity you don't just have to be an actress or a singer or a dancer anymore you can be famous for being on Instagram. You can be famous for being on Twitter, for being like sign up for an account and you can get famous. And so the idea of what it means to be a celebrity has changed. Um, there are thousands of Instagram celebrities. I don't know their names. I don't know what their brand is. I don't know why they exist, but they do. And young people follow them by the millions. Um I'm just like, I'm three years into doing Loudmouth Brown Girl. And I'm asking this question for all the people who are like, okay, you know what? I think I want to start a blog. I think I want to get on Instagram. I think I want to actually start making a brand for myself. What's some advice that you would give to people who are just starting out? And like, I sent out a, a press release a couple of weeks ago about my book like way after I published it because I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I was like maybe I should do this um these are things that like publicists do what are things that people can do on their own to start getting their 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 foot in the door first thing is encouraging I always say it starts before you start talking about media really believe you and understand why you are able you know why you belong there and that's a big huge thing because people often think even when they're hugely skilled in their work they think oh well I'm just a, an accountant I'm just a whatever I'm just a, and the people on tv are something else and you know when you said that um it, it's for celebrities I also I work with you know celebrities but also I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and solopreneurs people giving their message out, and it's about making them experts making them celebrities and if you like for example I work with Tony Dupree in Texas she's an etiquette expert she was you know had won awards locally and she had a business but she had no national presence and we were able now she's in chicago tribune she's in writing in australia she's been all like a, a list i can't even say a mile long utah newspaper all over the place because we she had someone pitching her right but the, the um the important thing is so is realizing that you're that expert and that's a a really huge thing um first and then once you do that there's a ton of opportunities there's things like um uh, things like Harrow and uh, Source Bottle and these things which look for experts where mainstream magazines, newspapers, TV is looking for people to quote for stories that are already going to exist, right? And um, and then there's learning the art of the pitch when you write the press release, you literally have that first that headline. 
Think about how you use your email. You don't even open up 90% of the email you get. Well, reporters get a thousand. So they don't open up most of them. So it has to be really strong header and you have to make sure you're sending it to the right thing. Not like, you know, if you're obviously not like a sports story to the news department, but even more like think about, is this something that I would see on the news or is this something more that I would see in like the lifestyle or the art section of the paper? And then go and look into the, the masthead and see who specifically writes there or Google the topic and see who has been writing you know on that topic recently go to medium which a lot of people don't realize is just like you know you can start writing on medium like the way you make right on your facebook page but it looks like huffington post you like a very nice article and if you write well or not even if you write well i mean if, if the luck of the draw happens and it suddenly gets you know they get they pick it up all of a sudden boom it could be in the front page and it is like huffington post with a million but even if not that starts to build your thought leadership. There's a million podcast matchup services where you can go and present you know, yourself as an expert. But again, whether you're reaching out to a podcast or you're reaching out to you know, the, the TV station, it's all about that pitch, which is not your bio. It's like a little convincing paragraph that explains why you make a compelling guest, what you can talk about, gives them some ideas for segments. You know? See, of, I find that interesting because I... <laughs> I often say, and and probably shouldn't be saying, a publicist would tell me not to phrase it this way. Let me put it that way. Um, yeah, but I, I often say, say some other publicists might. <laughs> but I, I often say I'm not an expert in anything, but I dabble in everything. Like I'm not an expert in cannabis, but I dabble in cannabis. I'm not <laughs> an expert in mental health, but I dabble in it because I've worked in the mental health industry. I've worked in addictions. I know that side of like trying to get people into recovery so I can talk to like, I can talk about what it means to get into recovery for somebody. And I can talk about um, how hard it is for people to stay there. So I know my experience, right? But it's that, that, that moment of like addressing, you know what, that, that moment of self-confidence where it's like, I know myself, I know what my skills are. I know what I'm capable of. I know that I can do this. That is where I think your job becomes important because essentially at the end of the day, you really are about telling people that they're great enough to do the things that they're doing. That, that You know what? That is so insightful because I never would have thought that was the case, but that ends up being a lot of my job. And that's even with women, you know, especially women, I notice, especially women. It's honestly, you know, primarily women. And it's that's a different thing. They say, oh, wow, you made me sound so good in this bio. And I'm like, it's literally the, the stuff you've done. I just put it together, you know, so because we're so, you know, women with like resumes a mile long and they're the same way. They're, they're nervous to put themselves out there or they feel like, oh, I don't want to brag. One lady, I was like, oh, my God, like she was I don't want I can't remember. She didn't use the word brag, but she was saying like she didn't want to make it all about us. Her. I said, listen, nobody thinks you're trying to be a star. If you were trying to be a star for the last 20 years, you'd be off in Hollywood trying to get parts. Instead, you've been sitting in your office helping other women advance their careers. And I talked about what she does, which is epic. Right. I'm like, that's what you've been doing. So we want to shine a light on that and talk about that work. And in order to do that, we have to talk about you. So own it. Yeah, I have been doing that. This is why. This is, don't shrink. But there's an old thing. I can't remember who it's. I, I think it's a one of the famous Black women writers, actually. I could be wrong. I don't want to misquote. But it's one of my favorite. I, I believe it was Alice Walker, one of my favorites. Could be wrong. But she said, um, you know, the, you don't, we, don't, we don't serve the world. And it may not be her. She may be quoting. But I think I heard it from a wise old woman. Like that, but we don't serve the world by shrinking. 
and pretending to be whatever. That's not helpful. You know, you it's not arrogant. What's the difference between arrogance and confidence? Arrogance is thinking you're better than other people. Confidence is knowing you're at least as good as the other people in the game. It doesn't mean you're better. It doesn't That's mean perfect. And even if you're at the top of your field, it doesn't mean I'm better than other people who aren't at the top of my field. You know, you know, I'm crap in so many other ways. You know what I mean? We all are. So like, that's the difference. We don't have to be afraid of being arrogant. We're not, just don't be arrogant. And I rarely, rarely meet people that are arrogant. Once or twice I have, hasn't been pleasant. It has not been in the entertainment world because mostly those people are pretty humble. And, you know, once you're, once you get past the gate of pretending, hey, waving and all that, they're just normal people. They want you to behave like they are right but it's the people that sometimes people who have stars in their eyes who not even in the celebrity world but in the like business world who think they're a little too special or who who want to be a little special or you know and those are the people that treat other people and I won't work with them anymore if I see people they're nice to me but they're not nice to the uber driver or something then like I don't want to give you a bigger my grandfather used to say if you're going to date somebody date somebody who treats the waiter with as much respect as he treats you because that translates, right? And I feel like when we're, um, and I, like, this is a big thing for me. If I tweet to you and you don't respond to me, sometimes I can understand that like you get thousands of replies and maybe you don't want to reply to them all. But sometimes it's those people that like, they, they don't get thousands of replies and they just don't see fit to respond to you. And it's like, okay, you've ignored me. You've put a wall up. That's cool. And I respect that. But I no longer want to converse with you. I'm not wasting my time trying to get your attention. I'm not just a little thing on the Twitter that, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. we're people behind the computers, right? And I yeah. find um, the thing with Instagram models and with online celebrity is that people tend to forget that. Like, it's it's I think the reason that they're famous is because it's like that could be me there they started their career on a computer I'm starting my career on a computer I could be there too one day that kind of mentality and I think we forget that like they still fart they still have to pull their pants down to go to the bathroom they still masturbate like they're just like us there's there's not really a difference um, you touched on the fact that you started your career by doing a lot of activism. Can you talk to us a little bit, a little bit about that? Yeah, I wasn't even starting my career. I, I mean, that led me to this, but I wasn't at all thinking about that at the time. At the time, I was just in low-level sales jobs and telemarketing from home because I could do, I had, actually, I was able to work from home back then, you know, when I was pregnant and had my baby and all that stuff, which was 18 years ago now. Um, so the whole time that we were doing our day job was my husband had a low, you know, entry level sales job at some sports company, whatever. So the whole time that we were doing all that, like we were also activists. When I first met my husband, he had a radio show on CIUG 89.5 FM Toronto, which was, you know, called Uppercut, a blow from below. It's all anti-racist stuff and like, you know, the activist kind of stuff we still do, but in our 20s even more and um I, I he brought me on that show really early on and then a couple of years later that show didn't exist anymore there was the early days of the internet that's how old i am and so we now had a chance to have a voice so we were making just an early web page and it was talk about our normal stuff you know whatever abuse anti-racist stuff like all the stuff that we normally talked about right like we were looking online for links and whatever to support some uh, just to show people stuff and share things like we always had 
to have a platform, you know, get knowledge out. And um, somehow we found this thing about Jimmy Dennis, who was, he had paid for a little ad on a site that allowed prisoners to pay for ads for pen pals or something. And he was like, I don't want a pen pal. I'm not looking for a girlfriend. I'm innocent on death row. Please, somebody help me, basically, right? No swearing. But don't use somebody help me. My husband and I, I don't know what, you know, to this day, we're still like, why do we ever sit and decide to not just send an email because you couldn't do that, but sit there and put pen to paper and write a letter, fold it up, put it in an envelope, then go to the post office and buy a stamp and send it off to death row in Pennsylvania. Don't know why we did that. I'll, why? I'll never, you know, what, why? Other than, I mean, yeah, we care. Yeah, we were activists. Yeah, but still, what made us do that? Those are the moments I think when, like I was, and I wrote about this today on my blog, yesterday I climbed in my shower, I turned on the hot water, I put on some music, I screamed as loud as I could, I looked up at the sky and I said, why do you hate me? And I was talking to God. And this morning I woke up and I got an email from a cannabis company that was like, we would like to work with you. And then I got another message that said, um, would you like to write for this cannabis magazine and I feel like what you're describing is those moments when the universe is talking and you just choose that moment like this is the moment that I'm gonna listen yeah I mean like I know like I know we wanted to save the world we thought we could do we felt like we could but still what made us do that I mean been thinking about that like what but thank god we did thank whatever in the universe we did so what happened with that case who wrote us 18 p he got that letter for some reason why did he answer this way he wrote back this is not something he did every time either but he felt it too and he wrote back 18 pages written on both sides 18 pages and said all the legal documentation that he had in the cell and that was enough we were like whoa it said like dark skinned black guy tall he's a light skinned black guy way shorter like even what you looked at originally you're like oh okay whoa, whoa, whoa. that's not stuff you could be making up like let me look in more there was already enough and then after that we would went to the courthouse we were somebody else did jim and tanya got the paid money for the legal so over time we had all this stuff anyway long story short we were hugely committed we started we were again not publicists didn't know nothing about that wasn't thinking about this job we were just activists my husband learned how to make a web page to get the just to write it all up there he's like typing it out because you could figure it out without html in those days and then i went to like alta vista pre-google and literally was like how to make write a press release because i couldn't write so i learned you know for immediate release um city and i and i wrote a press release i just found it recently about jimmy dennis innocent on death row how we sent it across america we didn't get much play there on that we got it internationally and we ended up building a team here and there and over a couple of years there was more and more media lawyers that were looking for a case of actual factual innocence in washington dc heard about him because of the buzz from there they spend the next 17 years you know and seven lawyers and millions of dollars and that's what it takes to overturn the shit in america excuse my language but that's what it takes to overturn the wheels of injustice in america and finally he was released in 2017 we talk every day now he's been featured in rolling stone magazine he's had four songs two love songs one called hate the skin i'm in about racism in america hashtag beautiful 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 black skin it's not about him hating the skin it's about we see you hating on us and not wanting to change however we're beautiful people with pride and it's gonna be okay and then his last song which is called hate the skin i'm in jimmy dennis on all streaming platforms we joke i'm now his publicist he used to be activist and death row prisoner now he's like recording artist award-winning publicist right here see what we did there see what we did there <laughs> well and again it's it goes back to what I was saying about the universe speaking because you just like what if you hadn't seen that advertisement what if you had skipped the page 
and not noticed it and it hadn't been you, he might still be in prison, he might be dead, you would not be a publicist today. Like it's that butterfly effect of your eyes just happen to catch this at the right exact moment. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you because you posted and I like for the life of me, I can't even remember. Oh yes, I was. You posted something today and it was, you were, you were talking about how proud you were of your accomplishments and some douchebag was like, and what, like, why is this important to me? And you just went off on him. And that was the moment where I was like, that, that is what I want comfortably uncomfortable conversations to be about. I want it to be about women. Like in, in season one, it was really about kind of just having conversations and not being alone. But season two, I really want it to be about connecting to women who are proud of their accomplishments and who aren't afraid to say, I'm proud of my accomplishments. And if you're not proud of my accomplishments, get the fuck out of my way. And that's the energy you brought today to that post. And that's like, that's why you're here right now. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And you know what? I tell people that too. And again, you know, you really have to be, and, and you know, people, okay, that remind me, I want to say this about the power woman thing, because people always call me a power woman now, because I won this award or that award, so, and I use that power woman thing for all my clients, so I use that too, but I want to make sure, and I, and I know how I'm using it, but I want to make sure that people aren't using it to me, when they, to me, to elevate me, because of awards and all that shit, right, so I always say, so people, once I was asked to do a talk about how to be a power woman, and I changed it to, you know, what is a power woman, and the answer is, you, <laughs> you, me literally all of us and I was like it doesn't matter a power I'm a power woman for sure but I've always been a power woman I didn't become a power woman because they gave me an award on that stage you know what I mean and that doesn't mean all the women that are on this stage just became power women or all the women that are not on this stage are nice nothing the women that are on this stage and me we're the ones that were noticed for our work right now that's all right there's a million women that are doing better work than I could do in my life in an hour's work, helping people change their lives, you know, in a million different forums and different things. You know what I'm saying? And we never hear about them because they're probably too embarrassed to say, Hey, look what I'm doing over here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So but whether, and that, whether it's them, me, or the woman who literally was just like had trouble getting up this morning because it's been way too much and everybody's been an asshole. And yesterday she wanted to jump out, you know, off a bridge and, or, you know what I mean? Or she just got out of the psych where because she was all psyched out. Everybody, you know, th- we're all power women. It's a matter of like, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you do. It's a matter of harnessing that and believing and seeing yourself that way and then making the world see you that way. So if I'm a power woman, yeah, great. I am a whole, I, I am for sure, you know, but everybody else is too. And if they don't know it yet, they just have to, you know, find that. And the only reason I've been like, I, I realized recently I've been successful in everything I've done. We don't talk, we don't talk about money here because I've only recently started to be good in business, right? But in advocacy and everything, and I've been successful in, you know, all those things I've ever done because I, I learned really early on, I have a voice and I never was privileged and I didn't have, a, I didn't know people. I didn't, I just made like this, I just made this out of nothing. You know, when I learned that when I was 15, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't unprivileged. I was like, you know, whatever, lower middle-class parents, divorced mom, you know, just a, nor- a normal kid in school that wasn't going to do anything with her life and never, I didn't really have any con- you know, connections or anything, but I learned really young. doesn't matter. Speak out, speak up about whatever. Whether it was John Lennon that taught me that, <laughs> you know, I blame him or whatever. But the first time I did that, it worked. Second time I did that, people listened. You know, speak out. doesn't matter who you are. What is in front of you? You know, because we all come from different places. We're all more or less privileged. We all have bigger 
barriers that are insurmountable. But, you know, seriously, this isn't the Pollyanna or toxic positivity, but no matter what's in front of you, whatever assholes, whatever the thing, you, we're always our, our own. Like, if we can't see that, no, no, I can at least get, you know, take a step and beat that shit, beat that first one so I can get to the second one, then it doesn't matter whether it's a small pebble or nine million things. There are people who have literally a thing that the rest of us would look at, like, what is their problem? Why can't they get over that? Whether it's mental health or 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 just lack of confidence or whatever it might be that we can't see why they can't get over that little pebble, and then there's other people who've literally knocked down every everything in the world that tried to stand in their way and, and said, you know what, yeah, watch this, and doesn't mean yeah, I think that you're less than either because again, we all have different tools to do that with. But. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I use years ago. I worked in a church. And one of the volunteers said to me, I don't understand why these homeless people can't just get over their shit. And it was like, because they don't have the skills. Yeah, we don't all have the same taught tool. them how to deal with their shit. And so when I got arrested and had my panic attack and all the memories of the trauma and the kidnapping and being raped, when all that stuff came out, I didn't have the tools either. I was like, yeah. here I was having been a woman whose job it was to help other people get over trauma. And then when it was my turn, everything that I had learned went out the fucking window. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I was like, let me just smoke a joint and, and sit here for three months and not process. move because and process. Right. And I am, I'm privileged that in that I had the opportunity to do that. And not a lot of people do, but I'm really glad that I have the opportunity to yeah, sit yeah. and process that because yeah. sometimes you just need to process the shit before and you see, can you deal just with it. You just get the head on something perfect there, maybe think exactly. So you were privileged in that instance to be able to be step back, yeah, you know, take time to heal, to recover, to do whatever you had to do, right? But again, and then the people. So what happens to the people who aren't, who don't aren't able to do that, who pull, you know? So then we then we judge them or we question or we do. Again, not everybody starts at the same place, and then even if they do, even if they even if it's twins and this, you know, the same guy. Not everybody has the same tools or the same experiences or the same, and it can be a tiny thing. I remember reading when I was reading everything about criminology, my you know, my prison of justice work years ago. So I was trying to educate myself, you know, because I'm not educated on this. So I was reading psychology books and everything else. And one of the books I read, she was criminologist, whatever. She was talking about, and this was a book for students written for you know people studying that. And she was talking about how this one guy that she was interviewing who had like a crime record a mile long. She didn't give him any information. We don't know what age, race, anything he was, right? We know that he had a crime record a mile long, like a huge, but nothing in it. So she said to him, she noticed when she looked at it, he's got a million crimes, been in jail 20 years, but there's not one thing in his record when she examined it, there was no rape. There was no murder. There was no grievous assault. So there was not one crime against a person. Right. And when, but, but meanwhile, his impulse control was clearly bad. He's, he was his own worst enemy. He was, you know, so when she sat down with him and she was talking to him and she was bringing, you know, at one point she was like, I noticed this in your record. Why do you think that is? Why, do, why, you know, if I asked him why that is, and he said, do you know, and this is a guy who was probably didn't say his age, but he had a long, it must've been 50 years I'm picturing. Right. And he said, when I was in grade five, I had a teacher. And she said to me once when I got into trouble, Bob, or whatever his name was, you know what, you're better than this. I know you, I know there's more to you than this, and you're better than this. That one moment with that one teacher who said that one positive thing to him. And there are people, because I worked in prison justice, again, I want to cry. People on death row, people whose names some people know, 
Some of them have done some bad shit. Okay, not the innocent ones. We did more work than that. Who, if I took their name out, it's not about sympathy. It's not about because they've done some horrible fucking shit and they need to be in jail. But if we rewound 40 fucking years and I took a story that I, they, these persons have never told me this. This is a person who said, I'll make my bed. I made my bed now. I'm going to lie in it. You and your anti death penalty things, whatever. Not looking for it. You know, thanks, but I'm not looking for it. So completely guilty. And, you know, but then in one day and not, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if I read this story. He never told to me, but I read, anyways, I hear that in their, in their, Story when if we rebound to 45 years when he's not this big old gruffy looking nasty con, right? And he's a five year old child. His mother, literally, and this is fact, this is like in the record, not by somebody saying it because he never wanted to talk about it. when he was interviewed. He was like, Oh, no, no, it's fine, you know, I was fine, my family was, you know, literally put him in a bag among all the other things. Clearly, you would have he was five years old, she put him in a bag and she's waving him over a fire. That's one five minutes we know about a five-year-old's life that alone even if every even if every other fucking day she was sweet as fucking pie and he was a billionaire that alone is gonna fucking damage a person you know so then we didn't help that kid that kid just ended up growing up getting to do whatever he fucking left here and there whatever the fuck went out to get in trouble started doing increasingly fucking bad things starting to do bad shit to women that we can't fucking defend that I don't want to fucking defend that's why he's in jail you know but let's go back to when he was and you know maybe he lived a whole life without having that teacher who said to him one day you know what you have a germ of worth in you that I see what about if you never have that and everybody is like that to you? Just like we talked about racism with like, you know, when you grow up in a racist, extremely racist society, like America is in a lot of places and everybody around you is, you know, you feel like you can't even look these people in the eye because you don't know what they're going to do to you. Where do you grow up feeling any kind of social contract to those people? Yeah. We learned about that in school when they taught us that in, um, in orphanages around the world, children don't get hugged and they don't get kissed and they don't get that physical attention because the nurses or the nuns or whoever is in charge, they don't have the emotional energy to be hugging and kissing 80 or 90 kids every day. Right. And Especially, look what that does, the harm that does to the kid, exactly. not even being hurt, just being ignored. Yeah. And then add to that, that kind of a grievous abuse, what does that do to a developing brain? And then we're going to judge that developing, then we're going to judge that person when they get to 18, 19, 20, and we've never stopped, we've never helped them, we've never hurt, not done anything. We've, as a society now, accepted that. And said, oh, that's whatever, Richard, whatever, whoever, you just, just deal with it. Oh, they deal with it all right. They're fucked up and damaged, and, you know? And then we're going to say, oh, you did this and we're going to convict you and throw you in jail for life. We've got to now because we've got to protect society. Now we've got innocent women getting hurt, right? Yeah. But it's all enough that we never did that. So we have to protect them, lock them up, throw away the key because, you know, we're not going to be sacrificing this guy now that he's been, you know, doing that. Right now we have to think about us. But at the same and, time- And to clarify, I am a victim of extreme- trauma and abuse at the hands of men so i know that there's going to be people in the audience going well my rapist belongs in prison blah 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 blah, blah. no and i agree they it. do belong in we prison get for it. sure yeah we get it a hundred number one is to nobody up. is disputing that rapists and murderers do not belong in jail no no for sure what we're saying <laughs> is that there is a whole entity that exists 
before that person becomes a violent criminal. Yeah, and so we're not talking about freeing them now. They're in, they're no. done. That person, unfortunately, has been destroyed, is damaged, and is not able to be in society. Unfor- like that's the result of what was happened to them, and then the lack of any treatment, and the lack of anything, and the lack of. So now, yeah, we cannot let them out. On hundred percent, they are in jail. We cannot be harmed. We can't let that cycle of abuse and trauma continue because they're, you know, the, you know, but. The next, but now we have to learn from that too. We can't close our eyes to the reality. Because no, today, and I think that that's where five-year-olds doing right and are going to turn into that or not. What do we do with that? Now we have the chance to stop that. Yeah, I think that that's where um, I was watching. Have you seen the show For Life? Yeah, I've seen the first two episodes so far. Yeah. Okay, it's so fucking good. Based on a true story, it's so good. Last night's episode. Spoiler alert, I don't care if you haven't seen it. I don't usually do spoilers, but this is right on topic, so I'm doing a big spoiler. Last night's episode was about the fact that the lawyer, I can't remember his name, goes back to the prison to see his client. It's in the middle of the COVID pandemic. He's not being allowed to see his client. He's not being allowed in. They end up releasing something like 300 and some odd characters uh, from the prison due to the COVID going on and whatnot but that it it just got me thinking that like this is happening around the world there are men and women in prisons they are not getting mental health help they are not being educated they are not being trained on how to how to reintegrate into society and that is what i would like to see our society fighting for um in terms of activism i'd like to see us fighting for these people to have the opportunity to prove that they are ready to come back into society and to be given the skills that they need to do so successfully so that they can feel safe enough to not reoffend. I don't think that that's too much to ask for from our governments or from the prison system, considering how much the prison system makes a lot of money off these people. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, and, <laughs> Yeah. And so, and like I said, if we, we have to find solutions to not just at the end, like we, you know, it's one thing to figure out what we're going to do with those people, but to, to realize that we haven't stopped doing, we haven't stopped the assembly line of creating those people that are going, that are right now are our kids that are going to be those, those, you know, criminals tomorrow, right? Yeah. Victimizing innocent people like you and me and our daughters and our sons and, you know, whatever, and on and on and on. And not everybody that's victimized, certainly, but that's why it gets back to seed and soil. That's what I was starting to say. It's, you know, because you cannot just say, oh, but that's happened to them. So this has happened. People say, well, it's happened to me and I haven't. Exactly. That's where it's seed and soil. And what enlightened me about when that, reading that story that I'll never forget with that reporter or with that therapist saying, that person had said, but that was at one time, that one teacher in grade five. And so his whole life, that one moment had kept him back from doing shit. So what about people who never had that positive reinforcement? Oh my God, they never had that switch. They have nothing to hold them back. And I've seen the same thing, you know, in prisoners who are offenders in prison and they're on death row, whether, you know, assuming they're guilty, but they were, you know, had pen pal programs and all that, where they were writing to, to, you know, couples, the Christians or whoever that was, or, or amnesty people. There's a bunch of different people that'll support prisoners and, and people in prison by, by mail. You know, like a lot of them are amnesty people, a lot of them are religious, but it's different kind of, you know, human rights activists and then also, you know, religious people. But I, so I'm, I don't know which, you know, who he was writing to. There was a guy in Arizona and I assume he was guilty, but there was like some crazy stuff going on in the prison there and they had the opportunity, like literally the prison was about to have an uprising. The prisoners were going to like, you know, 
holding up his racist guards. Just, we knew the background stuff, so we knew why. We were like, guys, please don't do that. It's not going to look good. You know, but basically there was there was almost an uprising, you know, with the prison grabbing the, uh, the guards and the racist guards. And look what happened. Anyway, it didn't... I think something did happen. A guard ended up being the custody of prisoners for a minute. And then the other prisoner like spoke up and was like, no, fixed it. And was like, no, no, this is stupid. We're not doing this. De-inflame the situation. The guard walked away. And then later they were like, well, why did you not take the chance to like be in, you know, get your revenge on this guy or do whatever. And you know what he said? He said, this is a murderer, guilty. And he said, you know what? Then I was thinking, what am I going to say to Bob and Jane, the couple that he writes to for the last five years? If I do that and they see that on my record, there's a prisoner on death row, nothing to die for, nothing to live for, nothing to hold him back. But he's got that one little lifeline of people who treat him like a, a human being, right? And again, don't let people go. But we're talking here, we're not talking about letting people go. We're just talking about a human insight. A connection. That, you know, human that, insight. That amazing. That, yeah. that, that, a person like that, an animal in a cage that we have to kill. I said, hold on, no, man. What am I going to say to Bob? They're going to, they're going. If I do that, they're not, they're not, they're going to see me differently. I'm trying to work really hard for them to say, well, that's a person that's fucking bettering themselves. You know what yeah. can you say? And they still to be locked in a cage if they did something that's guilty and bad. You know, and they're then obviously like, but you know, better yourself in the cage. There's a lot of opportunity there to do good and you know help your fellow man, write to them and help them better themselves and write essays about it and fucking you know, great. I'll applaud you. You don't get out. You know. And you, and, you know, and I don't say that shit easily because I mean, when, there's a lot of idiots and assholes too that are fucking. But I mean, just this work can also show you insights into human nature where you sometimes I was like, whoa. And I've used that and turned that and used some of those things I've learned in that work, you know, for in real life because um, in, in the other life too, because it will say in real life, you know, people are talking about whatever. I say, oh well, you know, back in death penalty work, we used to say we're all better in life. Every single one of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And none of us would want to be judged only on the worst thing we've ever done. By that same token, they say that in the death penalty work, right? But also I say by the same token, none of us are as good as the best thing we've ever done either. So again, all the people that you're applauding and we're all great that we're on awards and we're lauded, they're not really that great either. We're all just people, you know? So if I, I've been in the halls of power and I've literally been on death row interview, you know, being with people and, you know, this close. And if I took all those signifiers off and put everybody in a room half the time, you wouldn't know the difference between the politician and the prisoner. And that's the reality, which is really mind blowing. <laughs> it's cool. Cause I, um, I live near downtown. Vancouver. Well, I don't live near downtown Vancouver, but I'm close enough that I can get there. And where my mom works, there's a lot of people that live on the street. There's a lot of people that live in single room occupancy uh, hotels. And it's so funny because you see people walking down the street in Armani or driving in Lamborghinis. And then you see people that are completely homeless and have nothing to their name. And it's so diverse. And the only thing that's different between the two groups of people is that one group of people had people encouraging them and the other group of people had people abusing them or causing them harm. And it, we don't really not necessarily stop and think these men and women are in, that are in jail or that are on death row, maybe you're the voice that they need to hear. Maybe you're the person that inspires them to Stanley, I think his name is Stanley Chuki, who started the Crips or the Bloods. He wrote a bunch of children's books for kids. You know about him, yeah. He He's one of my freaking heroes. I can't remember his name because I'm stoned out of my tree right now, so it's not my fault. He would understand. Dave was on CP24 and City TV. I've been talking about it. Yeah, he, he would understand. He'd be like, "It's cool. You're high. I get it." 
but he, I mean, he was considered the worst of the worst and a terrible human being and, and a, a lost cause. And he created a whole series of children's books that said, you could do things differently. Mm. And his life will go on and inspire my kids because they will absolutely know about him. They will know about Tupac. They will know about Biggie. They will know about all these people who it's like, it's weird because Tupac, Biggie, RZA, the Wu-Tang Clan, they made money on glorifying the same things that yeah. millions of others are in prison for today. And, you know, my husband made a point the other day because we were talking about that. And he's so not really about that, but something along those lines. And he said, um, actually, it wasn't about that, but he was talking, we were just talking about that music and stuff. And he was saying, you know, who owns most of those companies in the, in the old days, too? It was all the old white guys that owned those companies that was originally putting out, you know, messaging, not talking about Tupac by then, they had real, but I mean, even the original glorification of, you know, gang warfare and shooting each other and yo, you bitch and all that stuff, which I can't, I'm not really qualified to speak on. I'm an outsider for sure. You know, and I know where a lot of it comes from too. But um, that that true. But that that you know, it's always a natural street, you know, expression. But at the same time, encouraging that expression. Here, let me give you money to singing about exactly those things. Which, by the way, also scares, you know, Karen in Kansas. Terrifies her about these black people. You know what I mean? So it's really weird when you notice that, like, it was all white companies, the old like white owners that was you know, funding and encouraging, putting out that kind of messaging, which it was truthful because it's the message people were living. But at the same time- it, At it the same up- time they were investing in, and I'm gonna say this very plainly, the same white people that were promoting Tupac, Biggie, RZA, Wu-Tang Clan, Method Man, um, Salt and Peppa, um, Diana Ross for that fucking matter, like all of those black artists had money tied up in the prison industrial system where they were collecting money off of people who were sacrificed in the name of making money for music. Like it's, it's such a convoluted, fucked up, complicated system wherein white people are still in every possible way benefiting on, on, on black lives. And I appreciate you coming on the show and speaking to that specifically because you are a white person and that puts you in the position of fucking white people right when we say those words we're kind of talking about all white people because even if you're an ally you still have privileges that i will never have right and so for you to come on and and be like even those of us who have been allies for years and think we know it all think i've been fighting racism all this time like i said to you before we started recording is like this even even like even for those of us who've been like i've been threatened by neo-nazis for being an anti-racist even when i was in my 20s on the radio i've been like i've been fighting this for years you know like to the point where i was getting threatened even so though i have learned so much this year because people are having sharing different things people having more open conversations my my own friend my family my friend my family you know, everybody, like, you know, associates in the Black community, America here, are sharing things about their own lived experiences that, you know, make me realize that, yeah, even as an ally, even as someone who thought I knew what was going on, I was still actually ignorant to a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the weight of it all and the, 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 how big, the bigness of it all. Yeah. You know, the, how it, the, how it's and that's not, why, and that's why I'm glad that, like, for you to come on to a show with a black woman and be like, yeah, yeah, I have privilege. That's huge because not a lot of white people could put themselves 
in that in that bullseye. I think people don't understand what it means too. Like still, I have this conversation. They're like, how many people do you still hear? Oh, I'm not privileged. I grew up, I was poor with a single mother. Okay, again, <laughs> for the people in the back, we're not saying that all white people were rich and have a silver spoon in no. your mouth. That's right. not what, but that's what I think. I see again, a lot of words and communication matter too. And this is why when somebody asked me totally different in a business show, they were like, what's the best thing you can explain about communication? how to communicate. And I said, number one, listen, because if you don't know what they're thinking, you can't communicate and address it, you know? And so right there, they're not even listening. If what they think you're saying, all these white people have privilege and they think that means you're saying that every white person is rich, right? Right or there, they didn't like, struggle. But you know what I mean? Right there or, or whatever. Yeah, right there, they're like, oh, they don't get it. See, see, she thinks we don't struggle. And then they don't even... They're, no, so you have to go, idiot, hello. No, we didn't mean that. We're saying that, yeah. you know, you come from a different, you know, you don't, you didn't have this and this. While, while you started with no money, you also didn't have all this other crap against you that you had to struggle. Yeah, I had a conversation a couple months ago with a white lady on Twitter and she was like, how dare you say your experience is worse than mine? And it's like, first of all, I'm black. Being born a mixed race black woman in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which is like the Texas of Canada, is hard enough. I told but then you throw day. in, <laughs> then you throw in being raped, being kidnapped, being tortured, being in a sex call without having your family know that you were in a what sex call. Hell? Like all of this shit. It's not that it's worse, it's that it oh. happened. And if you can't acknowledge that the fact that it happened to me. And then it happens to other black women around the world. Like last night, I had a conversation with about half a dozen women. At least three of them have been in sex cults against their will. That's that, excuse me. That's so funny. it happens. If you can't say this happened, not because I'm a girl, not because I am poor, but because I am black. Because the ideology of abusers who go after black women and black boys or indigenous boys and girls for that matter, okay? Because they were indigenous boys that were involved in what happened to me. If you can't say it happened because of the color of our skin, then you don't understand that what we go through is completely different than your experience. You might've been raped, you might've been kidnapped, but we were raped and kidnapped because we were brown yeah, so there's another because layer. Like they thought they would get away, away from, with it you know obviously anybody who's raped and kidnapped you, they're not comparing to anybody else raping yeah. it's a, obviously a horrible traumatizing experience no matter what color you are absolutely However, another layer of it on top is a is a is a, is a, is a like from what i hear you saying from what i understand when there's when there's a the whole layer it's like a, it's like a, i don't even know how to describe it but like yeah when there's like a heavy it's like another whole layer that racism is like a heaviness on top of that it's, it's like, like an umbrella the like- racism starts it starts with the racism and then you throw in the other issues you throw in the rape the kidnapping the fact that you're a girl the fact that you're poor and the then fact it ends that you're marginalized again. and it's just all these things on top of what you've been through right and that was what I was having trouble conveying and so again for you to come on and be like I'm a white chick I'm listening to your story I'm here to help you elevate that story it's huge because not a lot of white people are capable of like you said it's not just hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth 
It's listening to the overall message and how you interpret that message that matters. I don't understand why this is like, because I hear this from you and my black friends, my black family, you know, a lot, right? And associates and all that. And they say that, you know, it's not like, you know, when you, you, you know, I'm, you know, it's nice that people say that, but it's really upsetting to think that, that your experience really is that much so that it's weird. Like I was doing a podcast with a lady in Florida, deep Florida. So imagine, right? I, we I'm going to tell you this from- right now. I am terrified of Florida. No, Florida dude. as a state is like a weird place. And well, like the people go. that are there, the things that happen there, the politics freak me out. Well, that might explain this then, because she literally, so this is a black woman podcaster, right? <laughs> and she, we're talking business, a business show. We're just talking about business. And in the course of the business, I talk about, you know, elevating people and get, you know, getting them in the process for getting awards and all that. And so I'm saying, you know, I noticed, you know, when I was up for that award, that this particular award was diverse, not just in terms of, of the people, like in terms of color and age, but also in terms of the kind of industry, like not just bankers, you know what I mean? But also construction workers you know what I mean so they were anyway so when I was talking about how this particular award did a lot of diversity work I was saying most of them don't and they don't even realize it just because you know they they think they are but the thing is only the people who know about it are in the mix only the people who already are in that mix are in the mix right and so I basically when I was describing natural just the way I just did to you but I we are but in more detail because we were talking about that particular award I said you know so only the people whose bosses know about it are nominated only that and I go so primarily you know I go primarily it's a bunch like old white ladies in banking you know I couldn't believe it like to me I mean it's obvious like it's like I just it's like I stayed in the sky is blue sometimes you know what I mean and she obviously knows it too but she was so shocked I guess that a white person she's in Florida like you said I mean this is what's happened like she was on like like she was sitting on the edge of her bed interviewing me which I didn't know until like until this happened she was just sitting up right she had like a, she not only, she started laughing, she laughed when I said that, like she was with me, she's like laughing, like, oh my God, we were both like, can you believe that? And so we were both laughing. But he, she was so shocked that I said that, which to me, which I'm like, what is, what, that I, and I, she literally like, as she's laughing, she like physically reacted. She was like, ah, like she physically like fell right back. I was like, oh, I can't believe you just said that. And I was like, look at you. And I, I started laughing and I'm like, you can't believe I said what? That I'm like, the, the, you know, about <laughs> the white ladies on the stage and I'm laughing like this. And she's like, people don't just say that. And she obviously meant like, you know, white people don't just say it. And I'm like, well, that's the problem with Florida, because <laughs> this, this is an obvious thing. So if people aren't saying that, but I guess you're saying it's not just Florida, because you're saying it seems weird. It's, and that's, it's, that's it's all over the place in that when, and it's funny because a big portion of my audience is white women and white men. I, a lot of my Twitter followers, my Instagram followers, my Facebook friends, they're all white people. And it, it, it wasn't on purpose. It just happened that way. Um, well, Canada. Hopefully, we, we're not as divisive. I hope. No, I, I'm. I'm really lucky in that. Like when George Floyd died, that was really weird because all of a sudden, white people were like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And like, I just kept getting bombarded with "Are you okay?" messages because I when, hadn't heard about it yet. And then a couple days went by, and I was watching Chris Cuomo because he's the sexiest thing on CNN, uh, other than Don Lemon. And out of the corner of my eye, I caught it and I was like, oh, fuck. And I had deliberately not watched the video. I'd heard about it, but I had chosen not to watch it. And then my head just turned and I couldn't look away. And that was when it was like, that's why they're asking if I'm okay. 
because no white person in my life, other than my mother, had ever said to me, are you okay? Until George Floyd died. And then all of a sudden it was like, are you asking because you care? Or are you asking because you want me to feed into the black trauma porn that is happening around America right now? Because right after George Floyd, it was Breonna Taylor and then it was Ahmed Arbery and on and on. And it just kept, it just kept happening. And I was like, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And I deliberately started reaching out and finding black women to follow because I was like, I need to know I'm not alone because I am really alone my Twitter, my Facebook, Instagram, all my social media was white people. I had no black friends. I grew up in wow. Vancouver. Don't know anybody out here that's black except for the Afro-Canada Bud Sisters. Hmm. Like black in BC is very different than black in Toronto. In Toronto, they have community, they have friendships, they have family. In Vancouver, it's very isolated there are pockets of black that. people and they stay together nigerians hang out with nigerians somalians hang out with somalians they do not interact they do not like that's weird for a canadian city no that it I'm is only, I only well because it's, it's because we're so spread out right and so we don't necessarily know each other and we don't have like a central location where we can yeah, go and hang out it. together Man. right and so so yeah, um, Natalie and Kadisha had expressed that's why, you know, in their yeah. story, their origin story, that's why they literally around the death of George Floyd as well, right? Yeah. That's why they felt that they needed to reach out and talk and be And it's yeah. it's a different experience when um when I talk to my black friends, I don't have to explain. When I talk to my white friends, I'm constantly explaining. You know what I mean? Like, because they don't, they don't know. They're not in the activist community. They're not like yourself. They haven't been working with black people for 20 years. They don't understand the stories. They don't understand the frame of it's reference. It's so weird to me that in Canada, like when we talk in the States, I'm like, yeah, they're nuts there. But then when I talk to Canadians and this kind of experience, I'm like, man, we have so much work to do here too, that there was still that divided here. Like in my little fantasy world, and again, I've been in this work for years, you know, but yet in my fantasy world, I thought that like, Again, we were all here. Like we all agreed that racism was wrong. We were all for it. It was like a basic. Yeah. Like if you're saying, you know, like we all agree that slavery is wrong, right? We all agree on that. I thought we were in the same place with racism. That all same, obviously, all same people are in that way. But I mean, I I thought that like pretty much nobody who isn't a lunatic, you know, or like an actual neo-Nazi would be expressing, you know what I mean? Like that we all were where I am, except for those crazy people. But I didn't realize that those crazy people are not like 5%. No. And it's funny because when we found out that we, when Charlottesville happened, I, I, I don't remember why I was watching CNN. Sometimes I go into these binges where I watch it for weeks and weeks at a time. Sometimes I ignore it for months. It just depends on my mood. But when Charlottesville happened, I was playing around on the computer doing something and I start hearing this chant in the in my left ear and it's um, blood and soil, blood and soil. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Is that a horror movie? And I look up and I'm like, that's not a fucking horror movie. That's fucking Nazis. That's bona fide Nazis marching through Charlottesville, North Carolina. What the fuck is happening? And I went from like, that's cool. It sounds like a horror movie to holy fuck. This is a horror movie (laughs) on international news. What the hell is happening? And then like two days after that, they were doing an interview and this douchebag is like, yeah, I'm from Canada. 
And I was like, what? What the fuck do you mean you're from Canada? You went all the way to Charlottesville, North Carolina to march in a neo-Nazi march from wow. Canada? The most... America might be the most powerful country in the world, but Canada is the most privileged country in the world. Mm. We are. That's we, true. We're certainly better when you know about them. Yeah, that's true. America. White people in Canada have it good. They have yeah. nothing to complain about, except maybe coal miners and oil guys. They well, might have something to complain about. But generally, but compared to like everywhere else, we're compared not. to everywhere else, it's pretty good here. So the yeah. fact that there were people that not only believe that ideology in Canada, but that they traveled across the border pisses me off. And it hurts my heart. Like that's like, I, 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 oh man. Well, because it's bad <laughs> for black the, people in Canada, people. but it's not America. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not yeah, exactly. We're not like really. That's that's what we're. Oh my god. Right. And so I feel like if we don't start saying something now, 20 years from now, we're going to be like, well, why didn't anybody say anything? Yeah, exactly. And now, like I said, after 30 years of like anti-racist work and all this, I'm fucking heartbroken because like, I honestly feel now everybody, you know, not we as in me and people ever, but I mean, like we as a society, when I look at that shit going on in America, when I hear the voices people are sharing with me, I'm like, we're lucky. Oh my God, we're lucky we're not further apart with this kind of behavior. You know what I mean? Like, and how is and, it ever going to get I better? I just want to clarify: our indigenous brothers and sisters get it way worse than black people in Canada. Like they just do. Oh they yeah, do. you know. And I, I mean, I, I'm not for me to compare because I'm not either. But yeah, for sure. Whenever I'm talking to, like I say, I always bring up our bad record here about indigenous. And again, another thing I thought I knew. Now my my daughter, now my my new son-in-law is indigenous. My new daughter, they're not married yet. Congratulations. But, you know, might as well be, and he's amazing. But now, so but you know, he's a, he's a warrior. He's a like he's a young man, and he's like you know like you know in a good way. I'm saying, and I, I've learned I'm learning even more. Because my daughter had been so, she it wasn't, she didn't just become ingrained in this because she started dating him. She met him because she became ingrained in this and started going and fighting for land rights and all that stuff. So um, that's that's the content that she met him. But anyway, so I'm learning more and more because I'm paying attention to it as my daughter is out there about to get arrested. Not right now, but you know, <laughs> this summer, I'm paying attention to how they're being treated and how, and I'm learning more and more. And not just yeah, yeah, we treat them badly, but again, hearing the voices, seeing the specifics, you know. So we need to pay attention. And we won't be so proud. That's all. I just looked this up um, and I look it up every once in a while. The last residential school um, in Canada closed in 1996. What? Yeah. What year? 1996. I did not know that. That's insane. So that's not that long ago. Like we still have a long way to go as a Canadian society in terms of how we communicate with each other. Like the the Highway of Tears was not that long ago. I remember that in high school. Me too, yeah. Uh, Carla Hamoki was not that long ago. We have these problems and yes, they're on a smaller scale, but I think that it's important for women of color and white women and men of color and white men to have these conversations and to talk about like, look, you think it's hard because you're poor and white? Take a little bit, just 
five minutes, listen to some of the shit that I've been through, you know, and it's not, I'm not asking you to fight for me. I'm not asking you to change the world on my behalf. I'm just asking you to have enough compassion to hear my story. And I think that that's why I like what you're doing with your publishing company, because you're not just working with celebrities. You're not just working with famous Instagram models. You're working with people who have stories that matter victims of sexual assault, activists, um, people that are trying to connect other people. I, I told Kadisha and Natalie today that they saved my life with Afro-Canada Bud Sisters. Wow. Like I would not be here without that group. I would have committed much of a supportive, So it was that much of it a was, support. It was That's that really bad powerful. for a while, yeah. And you are a part of that journey. So by extension, you're one of the reasons that I'm still alive right now. Do you know what I mean? And that is, that is what that compassion, that connection, that communication, listening to stories and helping to amplify them. That's what it can do for people. Well, we're all glad you're still alive. So please stay, stay still alive. <laughs> I ain't got no plans to go nowhere anytime soon. All right. I need you to get me famous so that I can meet Captain America and marry him. <laughs> Read Captain America, not Chris Evans. <laughs> All right, let's talk about something a little more fun because we're we're just about rounding out our time here. Um, without dating yourself, because I don't want to offend you because I think you're amazing. How long have you been smoking cannabis? Oh my gosh. So I, um, I've been, I've been, I can't, I don't mind dating myself. I've been smoking since I was, actually I was almost, I was literally a week away from being 18. There was cannabis around me since I was 15, but I had never tried it. I, I was like, Oh no, you know, I don't do drugs. <laughs> I, I yeah, for, That's exactly how it sounded when it came out of my mouth too. I don't smoke weed. I'm, I'm laughing now. Like, what, a, what, a, what an idiot. I didn't understand the medicinal value. Somebody literally said to me, he's like, you're not ready yet. I was like, ready for what? He goes, you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so I was Holy like shit, he was I not did. kidding. And nobody pressured me or anything. Everyone was just like, okay, whatever. There's a friend who doesn't smoke yeah. for some reason, you know. Like, and then when everybody day, pressured me, they were like, let's close all the doors and windows and hotbox the house. <laughs> well, they tried, but I was, I was like, nope, no. And then I guess I gave up. I was boring. So like, nobody ever really pressured me. It was like, whatever. But then one day I was just like, hey, you know what? Like, bring a joint. They were like, what? I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I thought we'd smoke one before. <laughs> So I don't know, it just occurred to me, it's a good idea. And that was literally a week before I turned 18. Then after that, I was like, well, hello, I like this. <laughs> and I never looked back. And that was, so, and that was in, I was 18 in uh, 1989. Oh, that was not too long after I was born. I was born in 83. Oh, be quiet. <laughs> um. The one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about cannabis was because in that year, like 1989, people were not focused on strains. They weren't talking about tight combs. They weren't talking about CBD. They weren't talking about edibles. They were talking about like, let's smoke a joint, get high. It was like Donnie, Donnie Chong and Donnie Chong. It was, what's his name? Chong and Cheech and Chong, yeah, like you literally. Cheech and Chong, you I used to have a bar called Cheech and Chong. You think and I you would? And you were lucky if your guy had the good kind and the bad and, and the yeah. cheap kind. 
that was your option of strains. I have this good kind and then this shitty kind. And then after a little while, hydro came. I remember the first time I literally remember it would have been in 1993, the year before I met my husband, when I was when I had a crazy ass roommate for a couple of months. And we had a party is another, that's a whole other story. But anyway, um, we had a party in our backyard and she had, um, anyways, I remember whatever, one guy comes up and he's like, oh, Laura told me she didn't smoke weed. He's like, Laura tells me you smoke. And, um, and we didn't call, we didn't call it cannabis in those days. We called it weed, right? So he's like, Laura told me you smoke. I'm like, fuck yeah, whatever. He's like, come here, come here. And I was like, what, what? And he's like, oh, you're gonna like this. And it was, he was like, called it chemo weed. And it was, the, it was hydro. It was the first time we ever tried hydro. So it wasn't the Jamaican or the Mexican repressed. It was like, what is this <laughs> what is this magical and you know you looked at it and it had all the trichomes and all the crystals and that would have been like 94 the first time or 93 sorry first time i ever smoked yeah. that it's funny now though because like again back then you didn't have strains and today everybody has a strain like snoop dog fuck this motherfucker has a 75 dollar joint that you can buy like oh are you God. fucking kidding me 70- he started his career by selling five dollar joints <laughs> and now it's 75 all right snoop i, I bet you the weed now is that is a big fat now. fuck you to all the people that supported his music that's what that shit is i mean seriously <laughs> and i only say that because i'm jealous and i want to smoke that 75 dollar fucking joint i mean I, I wouldn't buy it but if somebody passed it to me i mean you know I wouldn't buy it I uh, I walked into a shop once and they had like these beautiful joints and it was covered in resin. And then on top of the resin, it had this like crystal gold coating of the like the liquid smoke. Oh, fuck, was it pretty. $250 later. And it goes up in smoke in the 30 seconds. Yeah. The boy doesn't look good yeah, on Yeah, exactly. <laughs> $250 up in smoke in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> If it doesn't kill you. So what are some of your favorite strains now? Um, so some of the first ones that I ever knew were like where I first got convinced. At first I thought strain were like a marketing lie. Oh, they just made them up. And the first time I actually recognized from trying it once and then trying it again from somebody different. So, oh, wow. Was pink. Pink Kush, your basic pink Ooh, Kush. I like pink Kush. I really like pink Kush still. Some other ones that have like been, you know, memorable. I like Godbud. I don't even know which one, if Godbud is a sativa or an indica, but I've liked Godbud a lot. I think that's an indica. I like Godbud too. Do you? Yeah. 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 Uh, also, Kosher Kush, I tried once and I really liked okay. it. I didn't like it when someone else had it, but when in the old, when I first tried it at um, Medicine Cabinet, which now Brittany, you know, Gera's in the legal market and has a legal store, but she was also one of the first of them. She got her, she, you know, she got slapped for being legacy and all that. And she had a beautiful store called Medicine Cabinet and they had some really nice stuff. Um, so God Bud, um, yeah, those, those are some of my favorite. I mean, really, I like, but recently I've been smoking stuff that I don't even know, I haven't even heard elsewhere. But like, you know, I've been getting from some patient friends that have just been giving me some of their strain. And one of them is Tom Ford Pink. Okay. Which is a really strong, like a heavy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I like a, I like a strong indica. And I smoke them I'm, all I'm the same way. Kadisha makes fun of me because I will smoke the same strain all month and let my body get used to it because I want to know, like, I want that time to get to know the strain. I want to know how it's going to make me feel. Um, 
tuna i just got i i finally decided i was like screw it i'll get a couple different strains this month instead of the same one so i bought tuna and i smoked that the other day and it was like holy fuck i'm back was like i'm good? awake i know who i am it was good i don't know if i've tried that it's good it's good we like tuna we like tuna very much okay, uh I'll white widow is another one that I like. Oh, White Widow is one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I That's love just, Widow. I mean, it's called White Widow. That's just a sexy fucking strain. Like, yeah. you get me That's high on White Widow, and I'm a happy girl. That's but like any of, of the, any of the White Cushes, like the White Cush, White Widow, White OG, like all those White strains, because they come from the same plant originally, um, and they're bred, they're bred off of each other. I'm I don't really think I've tried any of the other ones other than the White Widow. I didn't. I don't think I've ever tried White the White Kush Kush. is very similar to White Widow. Mm. It's, it's basically the same. Like, it's so similar for me that I'm like, I feel like I can breathe again. I would I'm say human. my top two are probably pink. Like, like other than the ones like Tom Ford Pink that I've just yeah. tried, but I haven't tried it from other people. You know, in terms of my top two that... I like no matter where I get it from, you know, yeah. are probably the pink Kush and the white widow. It's really a go-to actually. What if I can find white widow, I'm, 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 I'm having an orgasm in my brain. Like I, <laughs> and now that you mentioned, I haven't had that one for a while. Yeah. It's hard to get. Now that now I'm going to be thinking about it. Like you're right. I haven't, I haven't. If seen Snoop Dogg starts producing white widow, I'm going to smack him because the day that he discovers that, like everybody's going to be doing it. Um, what is the difference between for you when you're stoned versus when you're sober? Um, I don't know if I ever really feel stoned, you know, like, I mean, like, I mean, it's pretty rare that I'm actually like, oh man, I'm really high. Like, you yeah. know, once or twice a year, maybe, you know, other than that, it's like, I, I primarily, though I, I, I use cannabis for nausea. That's why I was nauseous, like a, a patient though. Lately I've been over, even before I did this total food overhaul, the nausea has been a lot better. So I haven't really had to medicate so much for that. So now it's, you know, now, now I can go to like three in the afternoon. I'm not smoking anything that I'm like, Oh man, I need to go and, you know, chill a little bit and just have a little break. Yeah, I have those moments. I, I smoked one like about an hour and a half before you messaged me to say like, can I have more time? And I was like, oh, fuck yes. I can I like, eat and I can watch my show and I can sober up a little bit. And I was doing, as well, I love people with cannabis that you can be like, hold up, calls five minutes later, she's got a smoke in this tube. And they're like, all right. I love clients and I can say that to you. They're like, all yeah, professionalism yeah. over here with Lamori Media and Loudmouth Brown Girl, nothing but. Um, where can people find you on social media? LamoriMedia.com. That's L-A-M-O-U-R-I-E media.com. Or more importantly, on Instagram, where you can see all the amazing things my clients do every day and all that stuff, which is more important. And that's a Tracy Lamori PR Media. So that's my name and then PR and then media. Um, my email address is LamoriPR at gmail.com. Uh, phone is 289-788-5881 if they want to text me using that old technology. And um, yeah, that's it. So if anybody's interested in, again, like I work with entrepreneurs, I work with, you know, solopreneurs, I work with activists, I work with, and and it's a really low price point, especially if it's activist or, you know, stuff like that. Corporate's one thing, but if it's something where, you know, I can't like do much for free anymore because like literally it's the you know, another person I, my business manager tells me I have to stop doing that. But 
but uh Except for you know, like, I, I don't, I'll never stop doing it at like crazy low price points and you know yeah. people can tell you they pay me once and then six months later they even if they're not able to pay me again I'm still sending the media message you know things so you know my activist heart is never gonna I'm always gonna be heart-centered and like you know I I have really I I wasn't sure what to expect because I know that like the world likes to think the loudmouth brown girl is an extrovert but I really am kind of a shy person and until I get to know you like it takes me a minute um but I really enjoyed this conversation and, and like just getting to know you and hearing your perspective and I'm so grateful that you took the time to like you could have told oh, me to take please, a flying thank you. I'm grateful for I, I'm super grateful that you would have me on I just it's, just it's it's all about sisterhood right and I wrote in my post today that a lot of my bud sisters are not necessarily black some of them are white women and you're right up there on that list. Like you were absolutely. I am honored to be, I'm a, you know, I was saying this to Kadisha, she had that, was it a hat or something? And I was like, oh, I need to get one. And then I go, but I look silly. I can't get a hat. She's like, you can have the hat. I would never, I don't ask to go into the groups. I'm not, that's a special play, you know, yeah. but I'm happy to be like an honorary support her <laughs> you, you know, know what i've been thinking about this i feel like i feel like we need to and kadisha's probably gonna like roll her eyes when she hears this episode but like i do genuinely feel like we need to create a bud sisters group for everybody do you know what i mean like we need to have one for men we need to have one for women we need Maybe to have, have a party once a month or something where you're like yeah hey guys, we need to do we something you because fun. you can hang out with the cool kids for one one day <laughs> <laughs> and we'll do some lectures yeah. and educating and ally yeah. educating something because i think that cannabis whether you smoke it or you eat it or you bathe in it or you use it as a topical, it just brings people together. It brings people to the table and it gives us the opportunity to connect. And I just, I really love that. Me too. And like you're all the way in BC. I would, I, you know, I wish you were here. We'd be able to say, well, you know, when the COVID ends, we'll Dude, get Dude, I've been trying to get to Toronto since I was 17. I had plans. I was going to live in a fabulous apartment right across the street from much music. I was going to date all the celebrities. I had plans, money. But it's colder here than where you are. Why? That's true. I get the ocean. And we have better yeah. weed. I have to check. I've never seen BC yet. I got to get out there. What? We're to hopefully. No, I've never been. My first time I saw the mountains was like when I went to LA. People were like, I was in California. Those are not mountains. Listen to this. I'm in Santa Monica, California, going, oh my God, look at the mountains. They're amazing. That's literally awesome. They're looking at me like, aren't you Canadian? I'm like, yeah, I don't live <laughs> in that side of the country. They're like, the Rockies? I'm like, yeah, no, Ontario. <laughs> That's It's so funny because I was thinking that the other day. I was like, I was thinking like, there's no squirrels near where I live, but there's lots of crows. But if you go into Vancouver, there's no crows, but there's lots of seagulls. That's so weird, eh? Little things. Yeah. <laughs> Little things like that, depending on where you are geographically. Y'all, yeah. this has been Comfortably Uncomfortable Conversations. I am Devin J. Hall. She is Tracy Lamori. You can find me on Twitter at Devin J. Hall or at loudmouthbrowngirl.com.